And we're live on Game Changers with Vicki Abelson. And my guest today is Carmine Rojas. And I am so excited that you're here, Carmine. New York in the house. New York in the house. We got to talk about it. All, right. All right, Carmine, talk for a second. And then the sound will double. You, you, you talk for a bit and I can That's turn my sound up. Okay, we got a, keep talking. We got a girl from Brooklyn. We got a guy for a second. You know, a girl from the Bronx. Uh, girl from Brooklyn. Testing one, two. There you go. There you go. How's your headphones now? One, two. Okay. Now, now I'm back. So now, so now the sound didn't double. Isn't that nice? I go. like. I like well, it. Now I'm I have to. This side. Okay. So so tell me everything. So you grew up in you grew up in Brooklyn Heights. I grew up exactly in Brooklyn Heights. Correct. And we, we our block was the last Puerto Rican block because <laughs> Brooklyn Heights is a, is a beautiful area. Yes. We were the last two blocks, Willow Place and Columbia Place. Right. We were, we were cut off with the highway, cut off, cut us off with the rest of the neighborhood. So you were on the wrong side of the highway. Is that what you're telling me? Exactly. It was the best side of beyond <laughs> because it was a lot more international. I mean, you had Irish, you had Puerto Ricans, you had all kinds of people. Wow. The schooling was better. And we were near a, a, a PAL, a police, what do you call it, those... Uh, those clubs back in the day where we used to go run in and learn and study and whatever. We had a place to go to hide. So a like club to go, like a community center or something? Yeah, exactly. With the 62 Club, which is, we used to call it on Jerolamon. Wow. Jerolamon oh, Jerolamon. Yes, Jerolamon of course. Yeah, yeah. And I lived on Jerolamon at that time. Wow. You know, oh my God. I love that uh, place. I miss it. It's a gorgeous neighborhood. My daughter just lived there. I was telling you, like... Uh, Three years ago, when she was going to school, she lived right, right there off State Street, and it, it's still beautiful. And yeah, yeah, I really. love walking through it. I mean, like I said, it, our blocks were, you know, just still. We were the, the last for them to clean up, <laughs> but it was it was a great cleanup. <laughs> oh my god! All right, so so how did how did the music get in you? When did the music get in you? Oh, it had to, it had to be um, very young, very extremely young. Listening to um, when I was growing up, we had to do up. Uh, Motown, Stax, right? Uh, we had the English Invasion. We had, um, you know, we we just had a, a, a just a mask full of different kinds of music. And AM radio was playing everything. We could, we everything. could hear, you know, Black Sabbath and Frank and Frank Sinatra. So it was a great <laughs> radio. You could hear the combination because it was all about music. Right. And growing up in Latin roots and R and B roots, mixed with the English stuff, mixed with the American American blues later on. But uh, yeah, it was just a. Uh, it, it when, was, when did you pick up a bass? When, or what was that the first was, thing you picked up? What was the first thing you picked up? First thing I picked up was drums. And then, but my brother, younger brother, played it better at the time. <laughs> so I picked up a bass, um, a precision bass to be exact. Um, these guys had a basement with instruments. And I went down there just kind of messing around, hanging out with friends. And they just said, you got to play bass because we have this kind of block party in Brooklyn Heights we, we used to have. What, right. And it was great because it was you know, Henry Chapman. Um, what's his name? Um, his last name was Chapman. I just can't think of the name right now. Harry. Harry Chapman, yes. And his brother. They lived in the Heights. No, I'm getting the wrong. I'm thinking of Harry Chapin. That's Chapin, wrong. Thank you. That's it. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah, they they yeah, lived yeah. in the Heights, too. They, they used Did to they? festivals together. Yeah. So this was before I knew they were famous. So uh, we had right. a couple of famous people there. But uh, yeah, it's just kind of it's just something that just kind of gravitated to. So how um, old were you when you started like fooling around? About 13, 12, 13. Kind of gave it up three times because I, could, I couldn't get it until I stopped trying. 
and then I got ah, it. I love that. I Are you self-taught or did you study? Self-taught. Yeah. Do you read? I read now. I, well, I used to read better in the middle. <laughs> I started off not reading, but as, <laughs> as the sessions started coming in and all these people were calling for, I, I started figuring out how do I read this? How do I read that? And I didn't read the bass charts. I used to read guitar charts because I used to have the full chord of the guitar chord. So I knew wow. D minus six, I go, I could do a D minus six bass line because I started figuring out those things, you know, patterns or whatever. So the bass lines, I would never, because it was always pretty simple in the sessions. There's like one dot, two dots going, I want to do more, you know? So <laughs> I gravitate, I saw the yes, guitar chart going, what is that chord? I love that chord, you know? Which well, made you, me you play the bass like a guitarist. I mean, you do. Well, it's a combination of, of, of like a Paul McCartney, you know, where they play bass and you play guitar bass and only a few people, well, there's a lot of guitar players who end up playing bass, but, it's, but they're not really playing bass. So right. I, you know, I come from a whole soul of, of my body, you know, shakes when I play the bass all the time. But um, but the combination like Paul McCartney and Chris Squire, there are a few people who can really play bass and guitar like that and make it musical to me. It's only a few you know, people I love. While we're here and talking about Paul McCartney, it made me think of Charlie Watts, yeah. the Stones. And so did, did you ever get to play with Charlie? No, but I got to meet him a bunch with Bernard and hanging out. Yeah, and Woody and I were friends from uh, from the Rod Stewart days and all that crap. But uh, yeah, it just he was he's an absolute gent. He really was that guy that you know the yeah. well dressed and walked in real quiet and you just looked at him going, I don't know if I can have a conversation with him or whatever, you know, or you don't know whether to bow to him or whatever, curse to him. <laughs> I heard he was really, I heard he was really a lovely person though, and not yeah, actually not was full of himself, right? Very soft spoken very attentive, you know, like looking in your eyes and, oh. and his coffee or his tea or whatever. I think it was tea at the time. And it was just, just you, you look and going, wow, what a, what a cool guy. Wow. You know, from, you know, it's, it's, just, it's, just, it's just the history of it growing up and watching him on that Sullivan show and, you know, oh, watching from 63 on into now. I mean, the real true rock and rollers. I mean, for sure, those guys were, including Bill Wyman, too. I have to give Bill Wyman the credit of the original Stones. Right. He's a great player, too. Fantastic. And what they did with what they had, with their education, and they, they, made, they made something out of it. So who, so when you're a kid, and you're, uh, so you're Chris Squires, Paul McCartney. Oh, what, yeah, yeah, yeah. What drummer, like, did you have any uh, idol drummers that you were like, okay, I want to play with that guy? When I was a kid? Yeah. Um, it would have been... Early, first, early on would have been the Latin bands like like Tito Puente or uh, which I started out playing R&B or doing the Motown stuff or Stax, like wow. you know those guys were just rhythm machines, and it was wow. important to understand uh, bass and drums are the foundation of the building. Right. Without that, the building collapse it collapses. So you, so that was very important. I was put into my head quite quite young that that has to be solid always between the bass and drums, and it was it was that education pushed me on to play always with a great drummer even if, even if I even if I didn't have the ability just play with a great drummer somebody great in front of you so you just kind of hold on to their you know to their education <laughs> and learn and pick up the, you know, different pieces. Did, did you learn from drummers as a bassist yeah because yeah. it's because it's about rhythms yeah if you mute if you mute if you mute an instrument like a piano or a guitar or whatever it's rhythms you can hear ryth rhythmic stuff so if you mute it mute everything every instrument it's it's going to be boop, boop, boop. You know, you can mute it all. It's all about rhythms. So it's helped learning Latin, learning R&B, 
mm. uh, learning all the English stuff because they had a different interpretation of what they were listening to. Like the Jeff Beck, like when I went to see um, the Jeff Beck group with Rod and Woody and those guys, I just looked at it thinking, wow, they look like peacocks because they were dressed up fresh velvet pants, <laughs> you know, looking amazing, but sound like an R&B band. You were oh, looking amazing. And I, you, you always know, looked amazing yeah, too, was, but anyway, I, yeah. I style somewhere, somehow. <laughs> but the ability of what they were trying to do, they wanted to be temptations. I'm right. thinking it's never going to happen, but what, but their interpretation was so cool back oh, then. You know, and I've seen them three or four times back in the day. And I just thought the English bands had this other thing so I mixed that with my R&B and Latin roots and just try to weasel my way around different things, playing different clubs like Cafe Wa back in the day. Yeah. Um, you know, early days playing around with different bands, always reaching. I was, just, I was very terrible um, playing the cover bands because then the cover bands, you have to play the song exactly the same. Right. I just had a bad habit of, of going left a little bit and adding more <laughs> to the song or whatever. And if someone else was in the band, we would run together, but it was great. When, if I had a drummer that would run with me, it was it was fantastic. Oh, so God. I, I so it's kind of an outlaw. So, so okay, so you, you're playing in little bit. You're, you're 13. You start playing yeah, some well, bass. When do you start playing in, in bands and, like, playing? Uh, 19. And was and it would have it been professionally, it would have been uh, LaBelle. And how, did you, how did you come out of nowhere and get that gig? It was a, We auditioned for it because they were looking for a band. And it was great because the advertisement was looking for a band that can do British rock, you know, rock, and it said Jeff Beck, Free, and it's wow. Latin, and Aunt Santana, and War. I said, wow. And we were that kind of band called Buff, B-U-F-F. So I said, we're that kind of band. We're like a Jeff Beck group, War, and Santana, because we're a combination. So right. we went to audition. So the whole band. Was, she, they wanted the whole band. Yeah, yeah wow. the whole band. So the five of us went, percussion, bass, drums, keyboards, guitar, and... um audition and there were 50 bands already have gone so they were pretty worn out and it was us and a new york band called haystack balboa huh i don't know if you remember them back in the day they were used to play around long island or whatever uh-huh and we end up out beating them because we were just uh-huh. we came in all flashy looking like the ross Stewart band you know like the jeff <laughs> band or whatever. Yeah, and yeah. we were a combination of all those kind of bands we were just a, right. a melting pot of it because we love this, we love that, and we used to go hang out at the Fillmore. We used to go to the Electric Circus uh, back in the oh, day. Oh come on! All right, so who, all right, I I saw Jethro Tull, Humble yeah. Pie, Johnny at the Fillmore East. Did you go to the Fillmore East back in the day? Plenty. Bloodwood Pig. Oh, Bloodwood Pig. Oh, yeah, I saw the God. show with Spooky Two. I saw, I, actually, I saw the show with um, uh, the big band with Led Zeppelin. It was I don't oh. know the Glenn Middle Band. No, it was um, Willie Herman Band. Oh Woody Herman, uh, Led Zeppelin, and who was headlining? I'm Butterfly or something. Something was very strange. Bill, and I used to wow. go there. I used to go see Young Bloods, and because I was always into different kinds of bands. And to add to the story, in the Fillmore East, there were a few Black Puerto Ricans there, and the few that were there later in years, and was Eddie Martinez, now Rogers, Omar Akeem. Those kids, we end up being friends, and end up being you know, borrow working, <laughs> yeah, yeah, working later on. Years later, uh, Vernon Reed, because we were wow. all kids doing the same kind of shows. Central Park used to have a bunch of shows. We oh, god, track. yeah, the Schaefer Festival. Oh, my god, Schaefer festivals, which I got to play with LaBelle in 1975. But, um, okay, so had, so you guys got the gig, and and so we went so, on tour opening up okay. for the home. Oh, stop. yeah, we did Gator Bowl Stadium because Pete Townsend was a big, a big LaBelle fan, so was Mick Jagger on them. 
the English bands were big fans of LaBelle because they loved all the R&B stuff. Wow. And our manager at the time, Vicky Wickham, used yeah. to work for Ready, Steady, Go in England. Yeah, yeah. All the people. She knew all the names. And they were big fans of LaBelle. So they, have, they would have us open up and stuff like that. Support. So, okay, so what's it like? You're a kid. Oh. What's, what's the first, can you think of like what your first like big gig, like walking out on that first like big step? Like, tell me, what was that the like? First, the first huge concert would have been um, Pontiac Stadium. And on the bill was Tower Power, War, Chaka Khan, Rufus. Jesus. Uh, average White Band. And somebody else. That was the first big stadium gig after the one with the Who at Gator Bowl Stadium. So the Gator Bowl Stadium with the Who, the original with Keith Moon, was was you couldn't comprehend visually unless you wore a pigeon. <laughs> you look around, it was just so massive. Oh my and, god. You know, it, it was just completely beyond what, what year was that, Carmine? Oh, 76. That would have been that would have been 76. Jeez. Would have been 75, 76 unbelievable yeah. so so are you like pinching yourself like are you out there looking at this like is this well, really you're, me you're, you're, you're hitting on different things you're triggering different things so it's it's it blows up my brain and you know just kind of <laughs> chemistry because a lot of the stuff i've i've either forgotten or it's just put to the side until right. someone triggers it right but, but labelle was the first professional band i was involved in which i joined in 72 73 and with them we toured with the from the fire curtis mayfield danny hathaway um, with the Who, um, Jesus. We did, we did Carnegie Hall. We did a lot of those great cafe, uh, cafe Wa. No, no, sorry, Cafe A Go Go. I think it was sure. Uh huh. Yeah. We did a lot of those kind of days. We were touring around the country, and it was it was our first time ever touring. You know, coming home with no money, but the experience with LaBelle, and God bless them because they really loved us and they really took care of us, and it was so nurturing to us. Aww. And they showed us there was a whole other side of the world. You know, because um, a lot of the gigs, there were a lot of gays and drag queens or whatever. Sure. Going, uh -huh. We were always at the gig, but that was their crowd. And that <laughs> opened up another avenue of different people and different clubs and different venues. And it was like a really eye opener and a great education to this day. You know, I still love them and know her. I'm always in touch. And whenever she calls, I would do whatever at any time. Because, wow. you know, for them, they took us on as kids and believed in us. And they really dragged us around to a lot of stuff. I mean, they were like saying, you can do this. And we're going, no, we can't. And she said, no, you can do this. <laughs> and she she pulled a good one on me because my first <laughs> real session in 70, right. 72, 73, I think, was oh for- Oh my an God, you album. were a baby. Yeah, I was 19, going on 20. And, I was, and it was for an album called Pressure Cooker. And in the session was another full band called Max Ann, which were mm -hmm. beautiful, great guys. Uh, Andre Lewis, keyboard player from Frank Zappa band. Oh, wow. Originally, uh, great musicians. And Stevie Wonder came in and co-wrote one of the songs. Now, I didn't know he was going to be there. So Jesus. we had to play with him. And I had to sit up next to him. True story. Jesus. I was sitting and shitting. I was hoping he would, <laughs> I figured he'd be smelling it. And, you know, oh we did the song, Open Up Your Heart. And I just can't remember the other title of the second song. It's on Pressure Cooker album, RCA album, LaBelle. And that was my first professional recording was with him. And he oh wanted- Oh my, like, what a place to start. Yeah. And I, it's, it's what you call getting thrown in the deep end. And I had to really physically be in my mind like a New Yorker and go, I'm going in. You yeah. Know? 
Either I learn something from it, I'll fail from it, and I can learn from the failure, which is always important. The mistakes right. are always important to take with, take right. with your life. And um, if Sibu would go, well, can you do, uh, link these chord changes? I'm thinking, I don't know what he's talking about, but I know I know it's a, it's a C and a B flat or something, whatever. I'll, I'll, I'll fuck around a little bit. Okay, so that's my question. Do you fake it or do you ask? I had to fake it. There you go. I faked it. So, <laughs> so me going for it, um, and at the time, I was at that point in time, I was a big Chuck Rainey and James Jameson fan. Mm -hmm. So I was very much a very top end bass player. Right. On the lines. Um, and the song came out amazing. And I, I could never repeat what I just, and every time, every time a chorus would come around, I couldn't remember what I did before. So I, I made up something else. And Holy I went like, I know, I know they're not going to use it. And Stevie Wonder goes, you know, like thumbs up. I'm right here. And the thumb goes, I'm going, okay, was that good or bad? You know? But uh, it was my first real true experience in the studio, which made me wonder going, okay, this is a different animal than playing live. This is a whole nother. So I have to be really serious on this part of it. I can goof around with the other stuff playing live, but studio is another different animal. And, and Stevie really had to... already broken huge because I saw Stevie as little Stevie Wonder open for the Stones in like yeah, 71. Exactly. I saw that tour with, with Tina Turner. <laughs> Stevie Wonder, yeah. <laughs> Wow. I'm, I'm sure, I bet we were at a lot of the same shows. I'm guessing oh, for sure. that. <laughs> oh, for sure. If it's I'm in New York, especially at the oh, Garden. Oh, it's a great yeah. show at the Garden. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> but yeah, that was um, my first real experience in the studio. And that just kind of, and that opened up another door in my head thinking, if I'm going to be serious about this, I got I to gotta hang with people who are going in the same direction. So what was your discipline like, Car uh, Carmine? How did... What That's was your a tough call. Yeah, my my discipline at the point in time because you know I wasn't really working, making any money, but right. it was to follow people who are going the same route. I want I want them to see. I see bands on stage like the Jeff Beck Group or whatever, or the Who right. or something, or um, Ray Barreto or something. Go, I want to do that. I want to be able to possibly do that to the best the best of my ability. And so, and how so, would you go about that when you were alone in your? How, how did you go about? Because we didn't have YouTube then, we didn't have all oh, this stuff. You play the albums, you, and you keep fucking, you know, keep going back to the, the spot with the needle <laughs> and ruining and scratching it. Uh, it took forever, but oh, it, 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 but you, the more you do it, it means you're putting more work into it. And so I wanted to be part of a band, which I ended up, ended up joining Buff. Those guys, right? And those guys were going someplace, and they were in the same head fame because we were into traffic. Um, oh free. God. Little Feet. We went to the same kind of bands early on in the right. 70s. So we were doing all those kind of music and Stevie Wonder and Danny Hathaway, Stones, uh, Spooky Tooth, which was a favorite of mine back in the oh day. Oh my God, Spooky yeah, Tooth. I love Spooky Tooth. There was just, you know, again, the English were coming over doing his R&B stuff, you know, and going, wow, that's, that's just cool. But you couldn't get wow. a white band to do the same kind of thing. You know, right. there were a couple of rare bands, like Ray Earth was one of those rare bands that could do right. it. Right, right. Detroit. Anybody from Detroit, white or black, were just, you know, they were all happening. Did you know Allie Willis? I'm thinking you must have. Allie Willis? How do I know Allie? Allie uh, wrote September with, she wrote a bunch of the Earth, Wind & Fire songs with them. And Allie, Allie is a monster from Detroit and a Jewish girl from Detroit who wrote black music. But what, what do I know? I wouldn't anyway, know her. I wouldn't know her. because I, I'm sure you knew her. Because uh, Charles Stephanie from Chicago worked a lot with, uh, they were all, the Detroit and Chicago had these great bands. And really particular, classy, great bands. Rodeo Connection. There were mm -hmm. a lot of great bands back in those days. There were a lot of bands. And it was all kinds of music. 
So I just left my ears open. I didn't stay one genre, you know. I didn't stay doing just R&B or, or disco or blues or whatever. I stayed, I did, I wanted to do all of it. I want to be a part of all of it and be more international. And you've played all, and I'm looking at all the gold and platinum records behind you and, oh. and they represent all kinds of genres. You're not, you yeah. didn't stop, yeah. you didn't get stuck in a genre at all. No, no, it's, it was, to me, it was more important to be uh, not big famous locally, big, big famous internationally. Because for some reason, once I got to Europe, that opened up another door. The more I traveled, different kinds so? of people. It just, it, it kind of almost brought me back to my past, my original uh, soul past with, me, with uh, mm -hmm. my original Spanish past. Mm -hmm. So in Europe, things was a lot more open. Amsterdam was a lot more open. Germany, France, Spain. It just opened up. The people were there were a lot friendlier. They were mm -hmm. really heavy into music. I got turned on to a bunch of stuff that eventually wow. years later, I ended up moving with a, a German-British band called Nectar to Germany. I ended up living with them in 1980 for two years and then wow. stayed in Europe and then picked up habits. And that's where I met Winwood. I met a bunch of people bunch of different bands. And then when I came back to America in 82, mm -hmm. I left in 80, came back in 82, late 82, joined Nona Hendrix, a new project. And she was opening up for Talking Heads and those different people. And wow. New York changed at that point. So I'm going, wow, this is a whole other thing going on here. Now, did you ever really play the clubs though? Because it sounds like you were always doing things that were putting you yeah. in big venues. I did play the club. I, I did play tracks a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did play tracks and I did play, um, Early on, the Latin clubs, not much because they, you know, there was it was too many guys on stage for one thing, and it was like a noise. It was, <laughs> you know, like it was like twenty guys playing one groove, and I wanted to go outside a little bit. So I was looking for people. I would go outside, and that's where I found guys who like King Crimson, you know, the prog bands, the Nice back then. Oh and, my God! Yeah, all the early all, all those English bands that we love at the Fillmore's. That oh, yeah. whole thing took my head into a different place. And I ended up playing with a pick, learning how to play with a pick when I lived in Germany. And that developed another style, another characteristic of my playing uh, for different things. And I use all of it, whatever I have, I use all of it. Uh, in yes, everything, you do. What, what, uh, we're gonna go back to the, 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 your lineage, uh, but- uh, You have to pick they, it. But I'll, I'll, I'm gonna go through them. But, but how about, what, what are you, who are some of your famous favorite drummers that you've played with through the years that just oh, you're man. home when you play with them you're just home yeah it's tony thompson uh jason bonham oh. uh, steve ferroni oh. oh what a monster he's, he's one of those where you have you have your headphones on and you hit the click track and the click track disappears but he's so clocked in going yeah. well maybe i need more click track with it but but <laughs> it's, it's actually he's so locked in his timing is amazing omar akeem who i grew mm -hmm. up with we played together with LaBelle together and different projects on the Bowie stuff. Um, I've, yeah, I've actually worked and played a lot of, Tal Bergman, who's a knucklehead. I love drummer. Tal. Oh, he's a knucklehead. <laughs> <laughs> he's my Hebrew national, you know, and I love him. <laughs> yeah, this, oh, to, I'm I'm sorry. To this I'm, day, yeah, got, yeah, to yeah this I can hear day, I see him, I have to start laughing. I see him and I, I start cracking up and he starts laughing and we have no idea what we're laughing at because we're just, <laughs> we're just silly knuckleheads. But he looks playing. exactly the same now as he did in 1986. Yes. His hair is still exactly the same. I mean, he's like exactly the same. That's when I met him back in the New York days. He was a little yeah. thinner, you know, him and his brother. Uh, but uh, uh, I know Tal his brother. is another one of those, him and Omar Akeem, they're just so blessed for what they do. And it just enhanced, you know, it's just, you have to play better. 
when you play wow. with the drummers, you know. And I love it. There's a lot of guys, I'm, I'm not thinking in my head, but, but there's a lot of sessions, a lot of surprise. Well, of, uh, you know what, well, as we go through your, your, yeah, yeah. your chronicle. Yeah, your, yeah, you pick a name. I'll, I'll You'll tell me, all right, so well, how did you get Sam Moore? And what was that like? That's like a whole different trip right there. Well, the, the story with that was they were going, to, they were planning to go to Japan. They had a band already. Uh -huh. And a bass player and everything. They were going to Japan and their keyboard player opted out. And in the band was Dave Prater. I don't know if you know Dave Prater from back in the day, in New York I, days. I don't think Drummer, so. Extraordinaire, used to work for CBS. Uh -huh. um, staff, writer, and producer. Great guy. And him and I grew up in the ranks too. Used to play with Santana. And wow. he called up and said, hey, we're going to Japan and there's no keyboard player. I know you can do Isaac Hayes parts. I said, yeah, it's kind of easy. I Wait said, a minute, you played keys with Sam Moore? I played keys. Yeah, I didn't when play did bass. When did you start keyboard. doing that? When did you start playing that keys? That started in, like in the early 70s, messing around, because I used to love chords. And I used to try to figure out, what's the name of that chord? So people, jazz guys would show me these chords going, oh, if I do this kind of bass line towards that chord, which opened my head up again, because learning the chords on keyboards, I mean, your right and your left hand has all of it, all the magic. So as a uh. bass player, if I watch what my right hand is doing and follow the chords with it, I can be much more melodic and much more musical with it. And that's why that always helped me out a lot, you know, for playing gospel and different things. But I got hired <laughs> to play keyboards. Wow. And I went to Japan and there's a live footage, there's a live film for it too. And I've been friends is, with them ever since. Is it on YouTube? Is Can I find it? It could be. It's, it's, a, it's us live, a 1970, 1982 at a Yokohama stadium. Wow. Yokohama well, I'm, I'm going to look for it today. Yeah, that's I, I, very I cool. But there, there, there's a copy floating around. So wow. I'm doing all the Isaac Hay parts, you know. And the bass player in the band is my tech for LaBelle. So that's was, crazy. It was pretty funny. Yeah. Do you find out. Carmine? Is that how most gigs happen? Is that a friend tell, brings in his friend to you bring in a friend? I mean, is that how it happens? Those, those, that's how it happens, but you have to have the talent to back it. Absolutely. So instead of somebody blaring, like, oh, I know a good friend of mine, you know, who's my roommate, who can do that gig. You know, you can really, you can really fuck yourself up. Sorry. But you're not going to recommend somebody unless you can curse no, on here. No, I no, have no. a foul fucking mouth. They're perfect for the job. Because exactly. even, even if I get someone brilliant to put in the job, he, you might not use his full potential. There's, there's always those possibilities too, where right. I'll get a friend to come in. I know he can do the gig, but then we're in the gig and the leader or the musical director is not really using his full potential, which is, which is sad to me because then huh. and you feel like, yo, you know, I got the money in my pocket, but it's, it's more than that. You know, right. at the end of the day, yeah, you, can have, you might have the money in your pocket. You might go buy sweet things or whatever, but your soul and your mind will never be the same. Did you ever turn anything down because your soul and your mind turned said, no, I can't do this? Yeah, a lot. A lot of stuff. Actually, a lot of stuff that was uh, worth a lot of money, which I won't mention any names. Okay. But it, it's, I just know that after a month on that tour, I would be depressed because wow. it, wouldn't, it wouldn't have the same spirit. Because I, I, I always want to feel like I'm 16. I don't want to change from <laughs> that. I want to feel like I'm watching those bands up on stage. Even me being up there, looking down, I'm that kid. You know, and wow. that's so important to still register and connect to me. You know, yes. I know a lot of guys who kind of get over it. I, I don't, I'm not over it. I'm, I'm still, you know, we've been locked down for two fucking years. Sorry, two years. You, uh, you never have to say you're sorry about saying yeah. fuck on my yeah. show because the lockdown yeah. has been really a head fuck. Oh, you know? God. And it's, it's a, the, the positive thing about it 
COVID and everything else, is that you spend time at home with your family and you might even go back to listen to stuff that you haven't listened to in years and you got the time to regroup musically in your head, which is all, I, that's all I've been trying to do. Let's and talk about that, Carmine, because um, I, I, I was doing live shows seven days a week when we went into lockdown, just because I had, I was being of service and it was of service to me, but, um, <laughs> but yeah. uh, I had to give up. I had a live show booked the next week, all this kind of, so what were you in the middle of? What was life like? Did a lot of stuff get canceled on you? What, what happened? We were just, we were just coming in from, uh, we were just coming back from, coming back from the Bowie alumni tour, coming back from Europe. And the dates before coming back in was from Israel. So we were coming back in. We started the American tour. This is February. I people saw you guys. I, I, in, no, I saw you before the lockdown. Yeah. So we were coming. We were, we just come back to the States. Rehearsals, get ready for March dates. And we got as far as March 12th, which was in oh, Portland. Right. You know, so it had to, it was a whole tour, a whole U.S. tour. Uh, and it was sad because it, it was just getting the feel right with Charlie Sexton. I mean, it was it was just a gang back together again, laughing and giggling and oh. being up to no good, you know, in a good way. Yeah. You know, not like the old ways, <laughs> the old days, <laughs> in a good way. We're going to talk way. about that too, because you never had that problem, but we'll, we'll talk. No, no, no. I don't have an addictive personality. So there's a, there's a big difference. I can go in deep. Back in the day, I used to be able to go in deep and realize I want to go get to my house before the sun comes up. I never liked sunlight in the morning. And, you know, a couple of times I ran too late, but uh, it's, 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 it's an uncomfortable feeling. And it would hinder, after a couple of days, you're suffering guilty thinking, I could have spent that much time doing creative, doing something else. So I always kept pushing to make sure nothing stops my projection to move, keep moving forward, whatever band it is, whatever situation it is. I need to be good at what I do so people can call you know, people can request, say, hey, you should try this guy out or as a musical director or whatever. You know, especially the 80s and 90s, I was developing so many different things. And, right. I, and I took a crew with me. I had, a, I had my own crew and band guys. Wow. That, that were, you know, we, we jumped from Bowie to John Waite to Julian Lennon, you know, back to Bowie or, or, or into some other stuff with Alan Childs on drums and Chuck Kentis on keyboards, uh, Doug Worthington on guitar. I, I had a great band and a great crew. And so I'm assuming that nobody in your crew had addiction issues in, no, in your immediate. Did you, did you have um, that? Did you have to deal with that? Yes, in a, it, but in, in a very, very protective and loving way, because we mm. we've taken some people in and others we just kept an eye on and say, hey, you know, grab a stash and put it in the fridge or whatever. I was very good with that. I was very, back in the day, I was very good with, if you had your stash, I'd take it from you and put it someplace and it wouldn't be touched. So you couldn't go, you couldn't come at, come at me. And if you did, you're being disrespectful, mm -hmm. you know? And then at that point, I just, I just put it, I just flush it. Did any gig go south because somebody was too wasted to do what they needed to do? Yeah, for, not uh, for myself, but um, yeah, it just, they weren't there at full potential with, you know, especially if you're working for someone and they're paying you to be there hundred percent. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm loyal as a soldier that way. I've always have been, and that'll never change. You know, I'm, I'm right there as a soldier and make sure we leave no man behind or woman, you know. And so it was very important for me when I got when I started learning how to be a musical director from Carlos Alomar, which was mm. my my future older brother. Uh, he, he had faith in me that I could do that. And so I, I went moved from after the Bowie thing in 83 mm -hmm. and went to being a musical director for different projects and different things. And it was a great learning experience. 
Okay, let's not. Okay, so since we got to Bowie, we have to stop. We have to uh -oh. stop. We have to talk. Okay, uh -oh. so I saw Sirius Moonlight. I saw, um, um, yeah, I, I saw 83. I saw 86. I, I Glass Spider. Uh, you, unbelievable, with the outfits and the moves and the groove <laughs> and the David, thing. Yeah, yeah, Both yeah. of those shows were yeah. ridiculous. And we, and we were playing like we were 16 years old. You know, again, we <laughs> the power and the force of it. And Carlos, who's an amazing musical director, and David, who just nothing bothered him, you know, just as long as we were in tune we, and we blast, we pushed him to be a better performer too and a singer, because he was he was a he was a, a new character at that point in time. He was a brand new character, more like a rock and roll character, you know, like a like an Elvis kind of a thing. But so we blast, we plow through it, you know. And '87 was when Peter Frampton came in. And yes, we got to help that. put him okay. back on the map, you know, as a rock guitar player. But with David, it was, it was, it was the, the easiest person to work for. Okay, so let's talk about that. So how did that, I mean, that had to be, that had to blow your mind out of your head when you got yeah. that gig. What, 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 how did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> it, it happened very strangely because uh, December, December 82, mm -hmm. I was back, I was back in the States working with Nona. And now Rogers, who I've known, Bernard, I knew the Sheik guy mm -hmm. because of Tony Thompson mm -hmm. from Sheik Guys, they called up, he called up and said, hey, so it was a Friday. He said, I need you to come down Monday to Power Station and help me do some demos with, with you know, with, with you know, these, this artist. I said, shit, that'd be great. I'd love to go down there. You know, I've only been there twice. I've only been there twice since it'll be a third time in Power Station. And I love that room. He said, yeah, come down. So Monday shows up. Monday comes around. I show up. And I'm walking to the power station thinking, oh, I wonder what room now is in. So I said, let me, let me walk in here because I love that room. Um, I walk in there and to my left, it's glass. So I look in and I, I don't see anybody. I see, I see a guy with a cap on talking to some, talking, I guess, to the engineer. And I went, oh, I don't know who that big old Bowie, I went, this is the exact word. Who, I wonder who that big old, <laughs> It's, a, it's such a New York slang. Big old Bowie looking motherfucker look like. You know, I, wonder who, I wonder who that is, you know? So then I walk out and behind me, I hear footsteps and it's the engineer, this assistant engineer saying, hey, Carmine, you're in this room. I said, oh, okay, cool. I said, who's that Bowie looking, Bowie -looking guy? He goes, that's David Bowie. I said, what? I said, no, nah, nah, you're fucking with me. Nah, yeah, this is a true story. So I walk, so I walk in. I looked at my leg. I, I see him again going, it does look like a maybe, maybe he's messing with me. So as I get forward in the room, I see David turn around, turns around and he's coming to greet me. I freeze because I'm blown away because I'm, I'm such a big fan. This is 83. Uh, this is this is early January 83 now. I'm going, it's fun. and I don't know whether to bow. Or curtsy or or you know pull my pants down i'm not sure what to do i really don't i'm not sure how to approach him because he's bigger than life to me because i've, I've oh, seen yeah. him. had you had you ever seen him before yeah i saw i saw the station station tour and okay. the white light tour i saw the 73 what i can't even anyway oh. yeah yeah you gotta, you gotta have a conversation with mike, mike <laughs> give stories. i, I saw him yes yeah. and, and even and uh Carlos, Carlos was with him. He would, yeah, they were all there with him. Yeah. Yeah. If, if they were there in well, 73. Yeah. This was 76, 74, 76, the Diamond Dogs tour, the White Light tour, uh, and Station Station. So I was already a fan because I just thought he was so different and I couldn't get what he was trying to do, but I liked it. 
Yeah. I, just, I was really <laughs> going, I don't know what it is, but it's so fucking cool to listen to it. And always so different. Everything yeah. he did was so different. And then right? he pulls up the Young American album going, wow, where did he get all that from? <laughs> it's like, whoa, what do you do? Drink R&B juice or something? <laughs> Hanging up the brothers <laughs> in the corner. <laughs> you know, I have no idea where I got all stuff. But being there, and so he approached me. Yeah. And I slowly put my hand, I shook my hand and said, welcome, you know, thanks for thanks for being part of the part of the project. And I'm thinking, it's kind of early to say that because I haven't even played yet. But he had he had already made, had a list in his head. Who who hired before. you? Nile hired me. Nile. Oh, he knew me. But, but David had a list of names. Of urban players, uh -huh. so he wanted street player because he always had black or Puerto Ricans players combination in the rhythm section because wow. he liked the rub against the mm -hmm. other other guys mm -hmm. against the rockers, and the rub was amazing. He knew he knew how to deal with the rub and how to rearrange it and how to wow. put it into a, a Bowie Bowie-ish kind of a thing. He had he he was just clever bastard. So I'm there thinking. Okay, this this is this is really surreal. I'm going in my head. Are we doing a station station album? I'm, I have all those tunes going in my head. Wow. Uh, and I'm going, wow, this is. Uh, so I sit there, and then Omar Akeem walks in. I'm going, I said, you got a phone call too? He said, yeah, Don's calling me up. So Omar looks, going, is that who I think it is? <laughs> I said, yeah. I said, and Omar goes, what's he doing here? I said, we're we're, we're actually playing for him. He goes, really? <laughs> I said, okay. And we're kids, you know, we're, yeah. we're, we're young kids. And we worked together with LaBelle with different, lots of different projects together. Right. And I'm going, okay, this is really <laughs> strange. And then then we, then that Monday we proceeded to do, um, I think the first day was Modern Love, Let's Dance, and another different, another song. Jesus. So I was only calling to do the one day. I'm going, wow, hopefully they'll, they'll use some of that stuff. You know, we'll get into the story, how the song is developed, but... I said, maybe, you know, hopefully they'll use that baseline. So as I was leaving, David says, can you come back tomorrow? And I look at Niles and I went, he says, yeah, yeah, come back tomorrow. I said, okay, because there was a list of guys that they wanted, you know, players to be on there. But somehow, I, didn't, I wasn't sure what was going on. So I came back the next day, Tuesday. Same thing happened again. Wednesday, I came back again. Wow. Thursday, again, Wednesday, I go, okay, I'll come back. And Thursday, Thursday after that session, he says, uh, you're good. I won't need you, you know, we're all good. And uh, we got other people coming in going, great. And I'm thinking, hopefully, maybe one of those two songs will get on the album with me playing bass on it. Because I know there's a lot of guys in town, a lot of great players, you know, uh, Neil Jason, you know, there's a lot of guys, Will Lee, there's a lot of guys in town that are just, they're, they're hot at that point in time, too. They're, they're right. And they're just already moving up the ranks in front of me. They were already top guys already. And so uh, uh, I'm thinking, great, Thursday. Four, four days of hanging out with them, talking with them a little bit about different tours and stuff. And I kind of kind of got along with them a little bit, but I wasn't sure because you just never know, you know? He's English, so you never know. <laughs> the foreigners, you know? You just never know with those kind of guys. But I was a big fan and a big fan of uh, Bob Clamount, who was the engineer. Mm -hmm. But that was a big, you know, Avalon, Roxy Music fan, Brian Furry. And he did such an amazing job on that album the year before. And working with him was stunning. Bob Claremont, mm. who's an ex-bass player too. Um, so I get a phone call the next on Friday to come back going, oh shit, okay, another song. I guess we got an extra song or something. So I come back and there's a song that they've been working on for the day that hadn't worked out. 
I said, okay, uh, um, don't play me the bass. Like, don't, I don't know who the bass guy is. Don't play right. me his line. I'll just come along. I said, who's playing drums? Tony Thompson. I, I know, Tony, I know what Tony's heartbeat is. So we're locking <laughs> real, we're locking real good, you know, rock style. Uh, and Claremont came in and we listened to the song going, okay, I'm not sure what, what it is. It's a cover song of something, Criminal World. So I go, okay, so I'll, I'll put a bass line, but can you, can you give me kind of a, like Paul McCartney, Chris Squire, you know, a, a, a trebly sound and I'll play with a pick and come up with a part. And that's what I did. I came up with a part and the part was on Criminal came, was so unique because it's not, it's not on the original. Um, I forget the artist's name, a British band. Duncan Cheek or something, Duncan Cheek or something. But um, Niles comes in and says, now nah, I got to, he, he said, I got to change the guitar parts now. So everyone had, they, they altered their parts to match the bass with the drums. Wow. And the vocals. And the vocals. Wow. So it was the bass and the drums and the vocals and keyboards, bass drum vocals took over the tune. Wow. So I was marching with Tony and Criminal World came out great. So those, and that was come, coming so out. So David sang it differently, but because of the way you were playing it? He sang it the way he sang it. So I'm matching with him and with the drums. So I put a brand new bass line on so that everybody else had to alter their, their parts, overdubs. Wow. So I just matched David and Tony Thompson's parts. And so it just kind of, and, and it worked. So when you listen to Criminal World, it was an idea in a studio to develop right there. Um, actually, the whole album was done with a pick. But uh, yeah, it was just one of those. It was the last song on that Friday. And I still don't know what was going to make it on the album until a month later. Um, I, hear it in, I hear it in Texas. Uh-oh. That's you. Let me shut that off. Um, I apologize for that. By the, by the way, while we're stopped, Debbie Blount is going, blonde hair, uh, pink hair, Debbie is, wants me to say hi to you. She says, Carmine knows me. You have to say hi for me. I do. Yeah. This okay. is a big JL, Julian Leonard fan. Big hug to you too, darling. There you go. But yeah, so a month later, I get a phone call from Carlos and to audition for the Bowie thing because I did such a great job on the album. And I haven't heard the album yet. I just heard one song, Let's Dance, which I was surprised thinking, Wow, it's a blues guitar player on there, Stevie Ray. You know, it was that was a whole nother story too. But uh, I want to hear thought, that story. Yeah, yeah. I, I came to audition and would calls on the phone. He says, "No, you don't. You don't have to audition. You got the gig." I said, Are "You sure?" And it's Carlos Alam on the phone. So I'm a little nervous because I'm a big fan of Carlos too. All right, one of those Puerto Ricans that disappeared, <laughs> living in Europe and all the like, working with um, working with a lot of different kinds of bands. And he has the history of of you know. But, and with Bowie yeah. from the beginning. Exactly. So it was yeah. like, wow, this, this is interesting to work with Carlos, who's another educator, which, which is perfect. It's what I needed. I needed someone that can educate and I can just learn more stuff from. Wow. Um, end up being a beautiful, to this day, a beautiful man. And my older brother, I call him, you know, and his wife, Robin Clark. You know, that, that's, Clark that's Carlos played a couple of my jams down at Spodiotis and uh, back in the oh, day. He was lovely. I remember quite a lot of being down there quite a bit. Oh yeah. Mitch, Mitch Weissman. Uh, yes, Mitch, hi Mitch. Yes. Hi, Mitch. <laughs> the real um, fake Paul. So yeah, so so I got a phone call and I didn't have to audition and I was really blown away. And I'm thinking, wow, this could be pretty, this could be pretty major for me, not realizing that the shit just fucking took off. And we were doing, we were rehearsing for theaters. And it just oh. took off into stadiums. We never got to the theaters. No kidding. It took, it took off into arenas and stadiums. 
You know, it was my first time spending seven months in Europe or in America playing all stadiums. So, okay, so what, I assume that your family is very proud of you that watching yeah. this happened to you. My mom and grandma, yeah. And they got to see a lot of the shows too, my mom and my grandmother. I was raised up with my grandmother. But uh, yeah, it's, it, the, the chest couldn't be big enough, I mean, you know. You know, very just just the proudness of them um, being secure that I would I would maybe do something with my life and my brother at the time. You know, um, having that support with them and the love and uh, lots of love from them. You know, and it was funny, the same thing with LaBelle because it was, it was like being in a family too, which mm. it still is. And every every band I wanted to be involved in had to be. You had to have spirit in, inside of it. You had to be part of a part of a tribe. I love that. And, and I always wanted to be part of a tribe because that's where we come from originally as growing up as kids, whether you're, you're Jewish, Puerto Rican or Irish or whatever, you, you always go back to being part of a group of mm -hmm. some things. Mm -hmm. And the tribe thing in a band situation was very unique because you're playing music with people you love and you're experimenting and you're learning and you're gathering information. And every day is an event. You know, you wake up, I'm in Rotterdam or I'm, I'm in Berlin or I'm in, I'm in Australia or something. And it's like a whole new adventure, especially those tours. To this wow. day, I still feel the same way. Even though I've been through all around the planet quite a bit with different bands, I still look forward to, to just get up in the morning, have a coffee and listen to the conversations with different languages and different foods, you know. I'm still very excited with that stuff, still. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so, travel, so doing the stadium tour with yeah. Bowie I mean first of all it's like he hits the stage and it's like God has entered the arena I mean I can't even yeah. imagine uh what that's like from your side of things yeah looking from behind him standing behind him and watching the impact yeah. of this one guy one walking guy. slow and just doing <laughs> just squinting an eye or just slow <laughs> movement or just doing something freaks the people out going wow what power you know it's, it's an interesting power play uh, it's different from politicians. It's different from other things. But that sense of power, and you got to be an Elvis. You got to be a Bowie. You got to be a Jagger. You got to be those kind of guys who have that kind of magic. Right. And you don't have to do much on stage. It's just you know just a flint here and a flint there. But it's very um, rewarding, and I'm and I'm always grateful to have to have seen it and smell it and be there. And, and, and how it's, it's like an army, the way everything is functioning, the way everything works, the buses and get run to the cars and this and whatever, the organizations. I loved all that stuff, you know, and I miss all that kind of, you know, I miss all that oh. stuff. The tour book, you know, it's like, wow. You know, I was very grateful every time I got a book, I was very grateful just to be there and to be a part of doing what I do, adding my little bit to this mess, you know, this beautiful mess that we, that we love and call music. That's very spiritual that comes from, somewhere else but uh I and i assume that on stage it was as fun as it looked yeah that that that, that spirit that yeah. you guys all had there was, no there, was, there was never there was never bullshit there it was always the same consistent every night because we had a great leader in front and a great musical director was very positive and he he always said you come up here with a smile don't come up here don't, don't bring up your don't put, bring up any personal shit you come up here like it's like a quincy jones thing about hanging your ego at the door you know lionel richie mm -hmm. thing whatever mm -hmm. that kind of stuff quincy jones thing and it was it was so true you come up there and you're 16 years old and you're playing these these amazing songs these catalogs that and every song it's like wow it's like i'm playing prog i'm playing classical i'm playing folk 
you know, I'm playing r and I'm playing, it's like a combination of, it's so totally of my world, you know, doing the combination of different things, not just one thing. And David was never about one thing. Right. You know, not a vision album, you know, the Berlin album, it's like, wow, it's like, I want to do all of it. And that's always, I, to this day, I'm still the same way. It's just, you know, I want to be able to play and do and have fun with all of it and learn from it. And you have to, once you learn from it, you gather it, you pass it on. That's you have fabulous. to pass it on. You got to pay it forward. You have to, have to, have to pay it forward. You can't so keep how, it with you. How have you done that, Carmine? How have you mentored or led or with who have you done being, that? For one example, being Spanish, mm-hmm. so South America, Cuba, Puerto Rico, Spain, there's kids there who want to do rock and roll or be, mm-hmm. you know, be wondering how I got there, or whatever. Mm-hmm. I inspired them that it's possible. I speak Spanish too. So I'm, I'm Puerto Rican. We can do this. We could do this combination, but you have to really be dedicated to it. You have to set your, your roadway clear and hang with people who are going the same direction. Mm-hmm. You know, kids now, I mean, they have, they have YouTube and everything else. I'm not sure what's happening with all that stuff, you know. Um, I'm, <laughs> lately, someone asked me, um, how do you jam? And I thought it was, I never, nobody's ever asked me that question. How do you jam? So I didn't really have, I had answers, but never clarified answers. But I saw something, oh, do I still have it? Ah, here it is. I should be back here. Hang on, give me a second, I'll be right there. No problem. This is it. Commandments of jam. Wow, Derek Trucks, 10 Commandments of Jam. It's, what are it's, they? It's amazing. It's, a, it's, it's 10, 10 of them. The, yeah. first one, the first one is just listen. It tells you what, the, what they have on the bottom of it. Uh-huh. Uh, the second one is respect everyone else's musical space. Nice. Uh, the third is make sure you are telling the sto- a story, which is really important of your playing ability. Make sure you're telling a story. Try to play an emotion, mm-hmm. you know, like be really mm-hmm. sensitive and play like you're playing for real, not because you're looking cute. Um, <laughs> never use the bandstand to practice. I mean, it's great these things he has. Um, treat the stage as your church. Okay. Mm. And he has stuff written on the bottom to, to, to answer the questions. Uh, number seven was make sure your intentions are right. Mm. Number eight, always make the band sound better, which is a really most important thing of whoever you're working for, make them sound great because he'll, 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 never, he'll never get fired. You know, <laughs> you, make, you make that circle sound great. He's paying for it, He's, you know. <laughs> You earn it, and he earns it too. So, I mean, it's a win-win situation, right? And then, uh, educate with your music. The last one is make sure you mean what you're saying, what you're doing. So, I mean, it's, it's that's again, great. So, anyone's out there looking, Derek Trucks, Ten Commandments of Jam. Is that online? Do you think can people find it? Do you think? I don't know, but it should be. I got it from some. I got it from somewhere. Very so cool. Yeah. But, uh, you know, these, that's why I, t- I, I said, read that, look at it, and then put yourself in those situations. Because most kids, don't, they, they have no idea. They learn this stuff off of YouTube, which is amazing. Right. And they very quickly learn it, but they don't know where the source comes from. That's a problem. The education, you, you don't know where, where Paul McCartney got this certain baseline, or James Jameson got this feel from, or Larry Graham, you know, or Chris Squire, what he was listening to at the time when he came up with that baseline. You know, the source is very important. We had to go back to stuff 
You can't, you can't just play, you, know, you can't mimic somebody and go, look how great I am and mimic all of it going, that's great, but where's your own shit? You know, where's your stuff in it? And that's, that's really important to find out how you can adapt and make it better. Or, you know, some songs you just have to leave alone. <laughs> you know, there's some bass lines going, nah, don't make it better. It's, it is, it is what it Ta- is. You can't change tax man. You can't change that. Not, you cannot do song. it. You know, some songs like, you know, sacrilege, you know, but mm-hmm. if you can interpret and put it in a different place, if it's a fast song, make it slower, you know, mm-hmm. and still have the emotion in it, which is really important. Um, yeah, so it's, these kids, I mean, they ask a lot, they ask a lot of questions, but they don't want to put the work in it. Mm-hmm. And they do, and they end up having a lot of these big hits, but they don't tour like we used to. And they don't really appreciate what's like really going up there, walking up those stairs and get ready, you know, when it's dark and the lights come on and then you're you're blasting with your mates. You know, that, that's the most powerful, beautiful feeling, blasting with your guys and you're looking around, you're laughing, cracking up because the shit sounds so good. And it's, <laughs> and, it's, and, it's, and it's huge, especially when you play stadiums and arenas. It's so fucking Jesus. Big. It's so powerful and big. It's like, yeah, yeah, all right, we're rocking it. And when you have guys like Bowie or, you know, great lead men, like I've worked with Bowie and Ron Stewart, Joe Bonamassa, and, you know, those kind of guys, they, they demand, they, they, they command the front really, really well, you know. Tina Turner was just, you know, just. Oh, my God. So tell me about playing with Tina. That's crazy. We did. a. I, I got hired to do come in and do four songs on the on the Far and the Fair album, mm-hmm. which has simply the best and um, Stevie Windows, mm-hmm. um, Secret Agents of the Blues and stuff like that. And there's a writer, um, um, Joe, from that, not Joe South. From, he's from down south. Mm-hmm. He plays a lot of swampy kind of things. Joe. Oh, I hate to not remember his name. Poke Ali, Poke Annie Sally. Poke, oh, ah, I'll come to me. Joe something. But he came okay. in and wrote these songs mm-hmm. for Tina, swampy, swampy songs. Mm-hmm. Swamp songs, which is how we came up with Steamy Windows and Secret Agent of the Blues. And it was, uh, um, he just passed away too, which I, I, I'm, I'm, I apologize for blanking his name, but uh, and a great, and a great, a great writer, a great writer himself. Rainy Night in Georgia, he wrote. He co-wrote Rainy Night in Georgia. Uh-huh. Yeah. You can look it up there. Yeah. I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm going to Google. Yeah, he's uh he wrote Rainy Night in Georgia. He's writing these great songs in the 70s and 80s. And he was a great swamp guitar player. Oh, it's not giving me the the writer. Tiny uh Tony Joe White. Thank you. Tony Joe White. Absolutely amazing writer and stays. Stayed with his style, stayed with him throughout his, his life. And he came in and co wrote some songs with you. And we were, the, we were the rhythm section Eddie Martinez, Jeff Bover, JT, JT Lewis on drums. Mm. Uh, we were the rhythm section for that album, Far and the Fair album, for those singles. Laura Thornton came up with Joe South. Yeah, people, are, and by the way, Les July says hello. Everybody's shooting, tell oh. them hello, tell them hello. <laughs> Guess it's all. Les, you dirty bastard. God known less for 30 something years too. Yeah. It's crazy. He still looks the same. Looks the same. <laughs> I don't think he, he didn't have dreadlocks back in the day. I don't think. I think he got no, them if he did, they were pretty small, but he's still thin as thin as a rail. Yeah, <laughs> and playing great bass. Absolutely. Yeah. We were at, we were at the jam some months ago and he just he played he played awesome. Yeah, so you know, that's the thing. Like back in the 80s, you know, I used to run all these jams. It's like yeah. the kids, the kids don't have that to do. 
there's not that same vibe. You know, in New York back well, in the day, no. it was happening all over the place. You could go from know. one to the other to the other. But there are there are places, but not yeah. many, not many. And you got guys who they end up sitting in the corner by themselves playing some great shit, but not really playing together. Right. But back then we were we were happy to hang together. Right. Even if you didn't know the person, you just, you just knew it was going to be fun. You know. Right. And that's why we did Spody Odia and China Club, whatever. It was just a big. It was just all a big hang. Absolutely. And you were happy to be there. You know. Yeah. And that's, I, I miss. I, I do miss those times, and there were different times. The hang was a little rough, but you know, <laughs> God bless those old hangs. But uh, yeah, it's just again, you know, uh, I still I don't ever want to, I just don't ever want to change all that stuff. You know, it's just again if, when I'm playing with someone, I need to feel that spirit. I need to feel like you know, all right, we're rocking it, and I have to have a great drummer. Whatever I do in life, always has to be a great drummer, because it I just saw a picture of you happen. and Kenny Aronoff talk about a great oh. drummer. That's one. Lots of sessions. Yeah, we've been doing a lot of this with um, um, what do you call it? Uh, what do they call that again? It's called um, I wrote it down too. America salutes you. It's for veterans, and we've been doing this stuff. With, and the co-host is Billy Billy Gibbons. Oh, so sweet. We've been playing with all these bands, and you can you can find um, America salutes you uh -huh. uh, on video stuff. Guitar legends. And and this this we've done four shows in a row together, me and Kenny, Kenny and I, oh, and Tal, nice. and Tal's done it too, a substitute for mm -hmm. Kenny, and with lots of different artists, and really very cool. Billy Gibbons hosting, and even nice. one night, Bonamassa did a night with us too. So it was it was actually fun wow. to get back play with him again. But Kenny, so wait, like, so you're doing these now, COVID, yeah. in COVID we do, time. We do, we do it every year. We do one every year. Uh -huh. uh, we did the last one in 2020. So there's another one coming up, hopefully. Uh, in December for 21. So how yeah, is no, uh, how is it working now? Uh, we're going to go back to your lineage yeah. in a minute. How is it working now in this COVID pandemic world? Like what kind of work are you doing? What do you feel safe doing? Yeah. I, I feel safer at home, to be honest. That, okay, people, so if, if, I, I, you know, I don't care what people think out there or their politics or whatever the situation. I got my shots. I'm getting, you know, I can't wait for the booster. And that's just me. And I feel very protective. If I get sick, I won't be sick like those other guys, those other folks, you know, who are close to being, who are close to dying. It's like, mm -hmm. it's unnecessary. There's no reason for it. Mm -hmm. Science is a science. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't, I don't want to get involved in that kind of stuff because I lost already a lot of friends, not in death, but a lot of friends on Facebook and everything else because they picked their sides. Right. And it's really sad that, uh, that we're in that kind of situation. Besides COVID and everything else, your family and friends are, are not batting from the same team and you're trying to be courteous and respectful enough for them, you know, and we live in America, freedom of speech, which we all have evenly, mm. you know? Um, and a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff has, has popped as, as real, you know, a lot of stuff has come up. Rita's ugly little head situation. And I think, I think it was the COVID thing is uh, it's a plus and a minus, you know, and you have to look at it positive and negative in the same way. A lot, of, a lot of things have come up racially and everything else. Stuff mm -hmm. from the past has come up to be dealt with. Mm -hmm. And it should be dealt with. Absolutely. In the most honest way, mm -hmm. if we're supposed to be created equal, we're supposed to be, you know, like the Constitution says, we're, we're all equal, being equal, equal, as Americans, we're supposed to be very equal, then let's be equal. You know, it's never going to happen 100%, but let's be 90%, not 60%, not 40 40%. Um, but yeah, I got my shots 
and and I love I actually like being home. And when I go out, I'll do stuff on Zoom. But people yeah. send me projects. I'll put baselines on it. You know, I've been finishing uh, a world project. I just did a sub. What's, what's the drummer from um, from Pearl Jam, the original drummer? Yeah, don't do this to me. Uh, a few sorry. seconds and I, yeah. I, I, all, right, uh, all right, wait. Now I'm going to have to <laughs> We uh, just did a great project called, we did a King song called Power Man with uh -huh. Bernard singing vocals on it. Wow. It was it's it absolutely brilliant song. We did a video for it. Um, I didn't even, I didn't even know Kings wrote that song, Power Man. Um, Aberson, uh, David Aberson. Uh, yeah, David okay. Aberson. I just I just see it right now. Okay, yeah. he's a yeah. great drummer, and we're just getting involved now with Bernard to do a. We're trying to work out together to do a tribute to Charlie. So uh, that that came out great. So I've been doing that, those projects and finishing a world project and finishing a, a Lebanese artist singer, female singer, world projects with that, you know, different mixing flamenco, mixing world roots combination with that, which I love because it's very educational for me. I can put rock against that. So it's fun to mix the beats, you know, mix, turn, turn the swing around a little bit, <laughs> like Santana, you know. Um, but yeah, I've just been working at home, from home. Um, I've been to the studio maybe twice, you know, bring my bass, bring my little tech, tech you know, my little, uh, preamp and you know state of distance and do the work but I, I prefer doing the work at home it's fun i i'm totally i'm yeah. totally with you i'm covid crazy i do i my life is home mostly yeah so what i did start doing is going to outdoor restaurants i've been eating outside you have have you have you done that not much my girl and i we haven't you know we got a little we got a little puppy girl so i've been being i've been being a, a new dad for that, so. Aww. I'm a, and I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a cat person. I'm my first little puppy girl, and Aww. she's got me. She's got me like this. Aww. She's kind of good, man. What kind of puppy you got? Um, Morky. It's a combination, but uh, she, she, she's got me too good. I'm, I'm sucking in. I'm, you know, got my nose, big old hook in my nose. Little, well, everybody, the the people that watch this show, the the regulars are we're called the COVID crazies, and they're all right with you. We we all have our vax. I just got my third vaccination. Don't ask, but yeah, I'm totally. It blows my mind that they had that concert in New York last week. This a few days yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. Like, what are they out of their minds? I don't yeah, care if they're yeah. showing vaccination. Crazy. I don't care how many people get shots. I don't need to wear a mask. I mean, it's, it's just it's still too close. It's still and, too. Close. And nobody was wearing a mask. Nobody was yeah, wearing a mask. Yeah. It was crazy. But it, it was interesting where the um, Lollapalooza, there weren't many um, casualties from it. That's good. It wasn't like maybe 300 people, maybe 100 people were sick. And they had a three-day festival. You know, I mean, that's the news that we got out of there. But still, it's like, wow, that's still taking too many chances. You know, we have word that next year we'll go back out with the Bowie thing, finish off the Diamond Dogs, um, Ziggy Stardust album. We were in the middle of doing combining the two together. So that's what's next year, hopefully for us. And I really can't wait to get back on and talk to people, see people eat strange food, <laughs> different languages, uh, talk to the crew and watch what they're doing. You know, it's just, I really, I, I've just, you know, I'm, I'm 68. So I, I really, I've been a part of this since 19. So and, and it's, it's in my blood very, very strongly. Okay, and so I'm let's go back to home. some of those gigs. Like, so how did John Waite happen? I, my good, my new <laughs> friend John Waite. I have to thank Earl Slick for that because he oh, was yeah. already, he was already, it was '83. Mm -hmm. We were just finishing the, the series of Moonlight Tour. He got a phone call to join the, the new uh, No Breaks band. 
with John Wade. He says, I got a band that's killing that, you know, can I bring them along with me? So that's how Alan Charles, um, uh, man, Tommy Mandel, I love Tommy. Oh, uh, Mandel. A name I haven't heard in a long time. Yeah, Mandel was involved, myself and Slick. And see, we were still with the No Breaks band. And we were out for that whole year um, promoting the, the, the Missing You album and it, uh, working on a brand new one. And that was fun. That was, you know, again, being a free fan, you know, Paul Rogers fan. Right. Here, someone who's like that to me, who has those kind of vocals, like a LaRoss Stewart and those gravity vocalists. Mm -hmm. um, I was like, oh, it's gonna, this is gonna be fun. You know, and it was fun. It was crazy for, you know, it was like some nights going, where's John? <laughs> is he around somewhere? <laughs> <I don't> know. <laughs> He'll tell you a story, does it? There was a- Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I'll stay away. There was, there was, there was a. We were filming uh, Paper Dolls, the series, mm -hmm. an episode. Mm -hmm. So they they locked us up at the hotel at the Sunset Marquee. We had to put a guard on John's door, oh. <laughs> so so he wouldn't get out. Yeah, a, Not so the I, girls wouldn't get in, but so that John couldn't get out. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know. So, you know, so we, we can make it in the morning for the for the shoot, you know. <laughs> we got that far, you know, we got we got to film it, you know, but John was wanted to get out, you know, and I'm he's he's above me, so I can hear him walking around, just walking, smoking a cigarette, like going, go to sleep, go to sleep. <laughs> and then he was trying to come down at the, at the marquee. You can actually come from different floors and crawl, you know, walk, climb down if you're good, if you if you have a good, a strong upper part, which I have. <laughs> He can't do that. He's a little skinny little English boy. And he was like crying. How do you do that? I said, no, I'm not going to show you, you know. <laughs> Go to yeah. Hysterical. Yeah, God, yeah. It was a great tour. We had the Missing, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, um, missing Persons Tour. We did a lot of headlining by ourselves. Scandal with Patty Smythe was a great tour. Great, great tour. Love Patty. Sweet. Okay, so then from John, then you, Rod Stewart. How the hell did that so from, happen? From oh John, God. it was 83 yeah. with Bowie. Yeah. John was 84. 85, 86 with Julian Lennon. That's right. Okay, so did you get meet Julian at the China Club? This is what I'm thinking in my head. That, that's, he, he didn't show up till later, but oh, okay. he was involved. Phil Ramon was the one who called me for the session to mm -hmm. do the first album, the Vallad album. And... He, he saw that we, we were kind of communicating fun, you know, just because I'm a you know, big Beatles fan. Shit, Julian right. Lennon, Jesus. can't go wrong with that shit, you know? <laughs> and, you know, and he saw how we were kind of getting along a little bit. And he, for a moment, was his, it was his idea to, you know, they wanted to take him on the road. And I think the label wanted him to play keyboards and be in front. And I just kind of thought, nah, I think he should be in front by like walking on like a Phil Collins kind of a thing. Hell yeah. You know, like, you know, put the keyboards over there. Let him learn how to work the stage because he's never done it before. So, how, <laughs> how old was Julian back then? Oh, I can't remember. He was like a kid, right? Yeah, he was still a, yeah, he was still a kid. Yeah. First album, but Phil Ramones, it was his idea. So I put my team together with Alan Childs, Chuck Entis, uh, and 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 half of Julian's band, the first album, and the rest was history. Just showed him how to how to. We were working. I forget one of those. those rehearsal studios where they have, it was full of mirrors and told him to turn around look at us when he went eventually felt comfortable to turn around and look at the audience look at the, the room and start singing because you know we're going to be there so i had to do kind of a psychological stuff with him wow that's he interesting was, he was a full 
fucking natural. He, you know, he just took over going, wow. And so the first tour, I'll tell you a quick story, was we were in DC, Constitution Hall in DC, mm-hmm. and the PA goes out, the, the wedges go out. So most singers listen, will panic. They can't hear the voice. They're saying, you know, turn the fucking thing up, blah, blah, blah. And if they panic and run off or they get really into themselves, Julian, what he does, he goes, well, I got no PA. He looks, he looks at me going, I said, keep singing. So he's singing, so he follows his voice. And the, the PA and the house PA is still on. So he follows his voice and walks directly to the front of the stage and keeps singing. That's like, wow, no, that's like full natural ability. And wow. he just real, he took common sense from I'll just walk forward. I can hear my voice out in the house. And the more he did that, the girls freaked out because he was coming close enough. So he, <laughs> so he ended up playing that up a little bit, you know, going, oh, okay, I, I'm getting it now, you know. And he was a complete natural, complete, complete natural, you know, these abilities. It was it was beautiful to, to watch someone do that because in the old days, singers would just run off stage because they can't hear themselves or the band's too loud. And there's always a, there's always some sort of drama with the queen mm-hmm. somehow. <laughs> going on never drama with julian he just did his bit and you know learned and studied and watched us and he knew we were always there confident you know so that was 85 86 and in between all that stuff i was doing a bunch of sessions then 87 came the glass spider tour you know so i had to go back and do that which i saw which was unbelievable that was a really that was that was an onslaught that one that was a lot of stuff going on uh and that was all through 87 and then 88 um, we took a, a good break with Bowie and I got, an old, I got a call uh, to put together, not me, but Tony Thompson and Eddie Martinez, Chuck Hentis, but half of my guys were called to do Rod Stewart. So they were auditioning. They wanted an American band because they knew American bands, we could do the R&B and the English stuff really well and the folk stuff really well. Right. The English guys that they had were very good, but they, 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 they were not really good R&B players. So we were the, we were a great combination of all that with Jeff Gollop, you know. I band. love Jeff. Oh, we love and we miss him dearly. And the band was, you know, Jeff Gollop, myself, Tony Thompson, and then later on Tony Brock came and played from the Babies. We were big Babies uh-huh. band from John Waite. Yes, so that connection. That's another connection with John Waite. I was a big Babies fan, um, but that band was great. And then it ended up being Jeff Gollop, Eddie Martinez, and Eddie Martinez left to do Robert Palmer. And Todd Sharp came in, mm-hmm. and Stevie Salas came in. There was different different guitar players, but Be- but uh, Gala was the main, you know, prime prime uh, guitar player. And so, what was it like? How was Rod? How, how was that experience? It was very different because, in my head, I wanted to do you know. I always forced them to do every picture tells a story. Oh, I always go back to the old catalog, Street right. Fighting Man. Yeah, yeah, know. yeah. Um, uh, just, just a bunch of songs because you always want to do, you know, move forward. I try to try to mix and my the tours that we did. I try to mix it together, so we do a combination of infatuation, and and pick something from the old, you know, glad bags or something, handbags and glad bags. Until we did the um, until we did um, uh, the acoustic show, the um, uh, we call it seated, uh, unplugged and seated, the beautiful, amazing unplugged in '93, and that we we did everything. That we wanted to do all together. Wow! And we had Ron Wood playing with us too, so it was fantastic. Oh. But working with him was funny because it's like a, 
he was all over the place and he was an amazing performer. And it's again, another thing with the raspy voice, you know, being such a Paul Rogers fan, um, it was the, just a different style. Rod had a different style. John Wade had a different style. It just, the vocabulary was a bit different, but they were great performers. But working with Rod was, was another comic, it's like a Mighty Python situation because it was just comical. Every day would be something going on. And if it's not with us, it's with the crew. Because his, his English crew was the same for quite a lot of years. Oh, yeah. They were always up to something. They, they carried two kids with them. Um, they, 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 carried, <laughs> they carried two kids with them. So if you were hanging, we were all in the same hotel. If you were hanging out, you're hanging out, you're picking up stuff and hanging out. Um, they would go to your place. They knew you were with some girl or whatever. They would go to your, your room, unscrew the door. So when you put your key in, it would fall flat down. You know, not how it is. And they, that's what they would do. And then you walk into your room and there would be shit missing, your room. Your room would be cleared and you couldn't see what was in it because they, they took the light bulbs out and everything would be in the bathroom. You know, it's oh like, God. how do they do that shit? Your suitcases hanging over the, <laughs> the balcony on a, on a rope or something. But it was, oh my they, were, God. they were called the sex police, the crew. But they had a toolkit and they would come in and do and dismantle shit and they were, they were, I mean, besides us having a good time, they were great fun to be around. That's so great. So Rod was fun. He wasn't full of himself. He was fun. Rod was Rod because he, there's, there's, there's moments where he could be as a prima donna or he yeah. could be the, the comic or he could be the real dark guy in the corner. Mm. Or, you know, he was a lot of, he was a lot of guys, mm. <laughs> to be honest with you. He, he was, he was the most, you know, you had to call early in the day. You had to call, uh, like for sound checks, you had to call. I had to call the production guy or um, the assistant. His assistant and say, "How's she doing today?" And he would say, she, <laughs> she, "She's doing half. She's at half mass. Oh. You know, she's half okay or something." Go, okay. We're we're ready for him. You know, so we'd be prepared. You know, you walk in because if he's dark, if he's in a dark way, like most some people are very moody, they look for weakness. Wow. For weakness. And then, and then they pounce. Then they pounce. So they find out who it is. So and they look, and you don't you don't, you don't look them in the eye. If you look at them in the eye, you look at them strong. You go, yes, well, let's go and make you, you get, try to get him out of his, his space, you know, or goof wow. on Wow. Yeah. You know, I, I saw I saw him at the ball with Jeff Beck right before the lockdown. Right. And it was like my dream to see them. Yeah. And Rod came out and did like an hour of Vegas. And I got to say, it just yeah. was like, no, that's not. And then when Beck came out, he finally rock and rolled. But, you know, yeah. but but Beck only did like four or five songs. And that was the end of it and of him. And Rod was just so Vegas that night. It was like, no, yeah. that's it, yeah. it, it really, when it got to that point, uh, it was great for his pockets. You know, and yeah. it was great. that he, he, He's gone to a, a thing where he, he really loves to do. He used to croon. He was a kid with his parents or whatever. And it was a great, amazing, beautiful written songs. By, by oh, the Great American yeah. Songbook and all that stuff that he does. Absolutely yeah, that's great. great. Yes. A lot of people were doing this at the time. Mm -hmm. And it really worked out great for him. But for us as, as an event, it's just, we didn't have that spit and fire anymore, you know? And yeah. so it's it just, it wasn't the same. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I, I kind of, you know, I, I wasn't ready to, to, to retire in my, in, my, in my mind. You know, yeah. from that, after that, after, I think I joined Bonamassa or something. Yeah. So how how did that happen? And and he, 
when you did that, was he all, he wasn't huge yet. Was he already huge? No, 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 no. no. Not at all, not at all. They, Kevin Shirley came in to change the band mm -hmm. and because he, he was just a blues, kind of a blues artist and Kevin Shirley, producer, wanted to put a different focus on that, what he was doing mm -hmm. and not to be caught in a blues, playing blues club. There's nothing wrong with it, but you're going to end up staying there. Right. You know, so, so Jason Bonham, myself, uh, Rick Mellick, keyboard player, mm -hmm. we were the band. To try to take that album, um, move that album, so it would focus him to a different place and to show his abilities better, differently. So it was basically having an English band, English-American band with him. Because what he, what, he, what he wanted to do is bring British blues, because the British brought R&B and turned us on to all the blues people. We wanted to give it back to them. Mm -hmm. That's what Joe was doing, and he and it was a great bunch of guys to do that with, you know. Bogey Bowles was on drums at that mm -hmm. point in time. Later on, Todd Bergman, mm -hmm. um, but it was nice. It was a, it was a great trick to bring it back to the British, and you had to really put it in their face because they had Gary Moore, you know. They still had Jeff Beck, they have all these other bands, all the other great guitar players, mm -hmm. and Joe came in and just blasted, you know, the stuff that they gave to us. We're giving it back to them as a tribute. And that's why we end up staying much more lengthy times in Europe than we did in America. And eventually mm -hmm. we started coming back into America after the, after the Royal Albert Hall, live, live at Royal Albert Hall. <clears throat> but Kevin had a real, Kevin had a concept, an idea, and it worked by putting different kinds of players, you know, inside of, again, the, the combination of us, of me and Jason together, which was fun, good fun. Um, yeah, just to take him away from doing the blues stuff, which because you, you can get you get you can get yourself caught up, you know, playing the same stuff in the same clubs. And you never and you never get out of the clubs. He knew that he had to get out of the clubs or right. play a bigger venue slowly but surely. So while that concept was going on, his management was had another different concept by controlling the clubs or controlling the arenas or controlling doing it themselves, promoting it themselves. The promoters at, at one point were saying, no, you come and play my club for two nights and I'll give you X amount of dollars, whatever. He goes, why do that when I can just go on the street, rent, the, rent that venue and take all the money to my, and have the money all to myself, 100%. Take the risk and you know, gather, gather everything, let them, let them get the prize. Uh-huh. The risk is the insurance and all that kind of stuff. And that's what they did. Joe and his management, were really dead on it. They were just wow. on, and and they had to trust the ability of the people making people come. To, you know, putting assets on seats, which is the most important thing. But the band was incredible. You know, it just it just escalated, and Joe's ability was just stunning. And again, playing with him, it took me back to my kid days, listening to Free, listening to earlier, you know, John Mayer Blues Breakers, and oh. early Fleetwood Mac, all the you know, Chicken Shack, or those, or those early bands. Mm -hmm. uh, really great blues bands, mm -hmm. um, electric blues bands, you know, like The Who and Jimi Hendrix and Cream and all that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. which was a great, just a, just a plethora of, of beautiful music at the time. And they were kids. They were 20 years old, those guys, 21 years old. They look, they look a lot older with the sideburns and the beards. <laughs> <laughs> I saw John Mayall, the film Maurice, also. Wow, he was great. Is it just with Mick Taylor on guitar? I don't remember. Uh, I was like 14. Think about that. Because I saw the, the male at the Fillmore and Mick Taylor was on guitar. And the oh amp was God. on the chair. He had his amp on, on the chair, which I've never seen before. Wow. 
I have to think about that. I was yeah. I was like tripping when I was there that day. Oh, God, yeah. ah, story. around the corner was the electric circus. I just trip at the electric circus. <laughs> I were, well, Jerry Brandt then opened uh, yes. he, he, the Spodiotes. He was my boss. Yeah, I love Jerry. What a what a character. God bless him. Jerry died of COVID. Yeah, I know. It's ago, sad yeah. because what a way to go, you know. And what a history from from you know early on from the sixties straight through. Oh trip. God, yeah. He, he was he was a guy with lots of ideas. <laughs> Always he certainly was. He's, he was a visionary. He was. Yeah, he absolutely. Was, he, he was absolutely one of a kind. One of the rare, one of the rare, those rare guys. He was. he was a character. So, all right. So, how did the Bowie celebration? <laughs> uh, how did that? How did that stop. happen? Um, actually, it was it was it was it was put together by another crew. Um, and we were just joining to being part of it. Adrian Ballou, a bunch of us started joining in together because it started getting uh, some legs on it. So well, what we, was the what was the what was the hope? What was the original concept? Like, original did you guys concept, did you did you envision that it would turn into this huge thing that it did? Well, we 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 were hoping it would. You hope, but the yeah, original sure. concept came from someone else, which I which I I had to apologize for blanking the name. They were at the Roxy early on. Um, the guitar player. Uh -huh. I just, I just, I have to apologize because I'm terrible with names anyway. It was his. It was basically his concept, and he would call up, say, hey, "You are you available to do this or whatever?" And we would kind of come in and do these Bowie songs or whatever, and it's kind of escalated as it went on, and it got to a point where uh, management and politics started rubbing against each other. Um, people, there was always there, there was news about you stole this you stole that this was my idea this is my concept and we just we needed we needed a matriarch to head the path and mike carson was the only matriarch to really make it a bowie alumni tour it had right. to be we had to have a matriarch as a leader not anybody else who's never done a bowie tour before or never been with bowie before and it was very important to save the brand Right. And so at one point, both bands were together. We did, well, who was, we did who was the original uh, front person? And how did you, how was it decided how that would happen? That, that's uh, probably Bernard could tell you that one, because there was a lot of different singing, a lot of different people. Uh, when, it, when it ended up splitting, we ended up doing Bernard and Corey right. and different singers and stuff like that. But um, I saw Joe Sumner. Oh, he was yeah, Joe amazing. Sumner. Great He's job. Amazing. Still. He, he just kind of grew up and just blossomed. He's fabulous, yeah. Yeah, a lovely guy too, lovely guy. His dad would come out every now and then to see a couple of his different shows. Not bad. Yeah, not bad, exactly, exactly, how pleasant. But yeah, no, it just, the camp split mm -hmm. and you know, I had to make a decision which camp to go with. I had to go with the matriarch because it would protect the, the brand. And who was, who was the other part? People that didn't play with Bowie originally? Well, the, the, major, the original musical director, when I, and I have to really apologize, I can't remember his name at the moment. Okay. I'll remember when I'm not doing something. Yeah. Um, he was a leader of, of the project, and it started rubbing against original players. Um, so know. he was not an original player? No, he the was not, never, never been anything to do, but, he, but his concept, his idea, and his push made it happen. I he, see. He needs to have a lot of credit for that because it, he actually made it happen. And I helped see. Help to put it on the map. Mm -hmm. He really did help to put it put it on the map, mm -hmm. and blessing for it. You know. Then later on, I got a phone call to come back around, and we did both bands together in Europe, which was fantastic with Adrian Ballou, a combination of us. And then um, the Europeans wanted wanted some more, 
So they were they they anchored more with Mike Garson because he was because it it's just it was just much more solid situation. Right. So we went out with Mike Garson and whatever was available singer wise or guitar player Jerry Lennon or Slick or Mike Mark Party, um, Charlie Sexton. The last time we were out, so it was a combination of all that stuff. But uh, ended up being that at the end. Bowie, and we had to change the name again because it was it was a. Uh, a, a Bowie celebration was it was actually something very close to which I can't think of it right now what it was before because I'm so stuck on the new one ABC um, yeah but hopefully next year we'll be back out again oh so you're not going that. out as a Bowie celebration anymore it's not that we are. Anymore. ABC oh, yeah, you are. For sure. okay. yeah for sure that, that'll be next year and hopefully we can finish what we started with with Ziggy and the Diamond Dogs tour that we, we mixed both albums together the whole wow. complete album all the wow so it was fantastic to do that. And it's great playing the parts and remembering as a kid watching them do it. Dennis Davis and Carlos Alamon, Luther Rangels. And that's funny to just watch it, to look back at all that kind of stuff and knowing you're, I'm part of that family too, which is fantastic. Absolutely. Very blessed. Very, very All blessed. right. So I'm looking at your list of people that you've played with, not people that you did like whole big tours with. So you've played with. With Mick and Keith, what yeah. was the circumstance of that? Keith and Mick separate. We were working okay. on, on on Jagger stuff. Was working on his first album. She's the boss. He was all. He took months to, to try to find a rhythm section. So we were the first rhythm section to work on. She's the boss. He's had like a, like ten rhythm sections before he finally recorded wow. it. And by wow. that time, I was already somewhere else. You know, the guys were the original band. We were already somewhere else. Carlos Alamo put the band together for for, for Mick. And we were rehearsing, we were rehearsing, like, putting together new songs for the new album. That's that's the mixed story. With Keith was just jamming with uh with with Waddy Wattell and all those guys. Oh God. Yeah, those, the, the, the guys they, they, they always did the gig at the immediate family. Yep. Yeah. What's that club they always play at? With Waddy um, Wattell and Bernard and The Mint. The Mint, yeah. Wow. How, okay, Stevie Ray Vaughan. The, with, with, that was with the Bowie thing. And hanging and same friends with him for over the years, mm. and jamming and some uh, popping up at some club in Minneapolis and start playing jamming together, and we stayed friends. We stayed in touch, and I would have always run into them at the Mayflower Hotel. <laughs> they, they seem to be living there. That's where we all lived. We all lived at Mayflower Hotel. Really? In New York, yeah, a lot of us. That was a hotel for all the bands. I guess they accepted all the crap that went down there. <laughs> the sticky the broken furniture and the yeah, <laughs> sticky carpets. <laughs> <laughs> Um, how about Billy Joel? Oh, just working on, um, we were working on an album with Phil Ramone, uh, working on a track, and in the session with Steve Winwood. So we were doing traffic songs, and he was trying to experiment on the song, which I can't think of right now. It's on one of the best of albums. Um, I was calling as a session from Phil Ramone, playing bass. And in the session was Winwood, which was, which was fucking fantastic. Do you, do you get starstruck? I mean, have you ever gotten starstruck? I mean, here you are meeting only all your twice. heroes. Play. Only twice when I first met at Manny's uh, yeah. was Paul McCartney and his wife walking down the aisle at Manny's. And oh, I God. just, I, another one, it's godlike, you know, it's like, yeah. what do you say? He, look, he looked at down at us, you know, because we're, you know, two Puerto Ricans, me, me and my friend Ralph, we go, <laughs> <laughs> and the gear, when you walk up the aisle, the gear, you're there close. So you could, you could smell them and it's like, you can't believe it. and they walk away he was there with linda walking with yeah. linda which was beautiful that him and the first time meeting jeff beck how what was that like starstruck i couldn't believe it 
you know, I think I think the first time would have been, I think Eddie, I think we were LaBelle and Eddie Martinez and I were together. And Eddie says to him, you're a sick fuck. And he, he goes you know, like that, you know, because <laughs> they were talking about guitars or whatever. And we were big fans. He knows me, he knew we were LaBelle. Mm. And Eddie Martinez goes, you're a sick fuck, you know, <laughs> like right out of his mouth. Like, okay, so, yeah, and he loved that, you know. <laughs> then I would meet him over the years, different places, different times. <laughs> only twice, yeah, Paul McCartney and Jeff Beck were the only two. That was kind of like, wow, that took your breath away. Yeah, completely. I mean, just you know, God, the godlike to me. You know, at that point in yeah. time, especially Paul, especially Paul McCartney. Yeah, uh, and back to where he plays, like I don't know where he gets that shit from. I saw, I saw. I, I tell you a quick story. I saw him pick up a guitar at a music store, mm-hmm. and, I, and the same guitar a guy previous was playing it. It was completely out of tune, out of tune. You know, and so the mm-hmm. guy put it back. So right. Beck was walking. And we see him and look at him and he picks the same guitar. And I'm saying, shit, that's really out of tune, that guitar. He's going to have to tune it. He starts playing it. Doesn't tune it. He starts playing it and using the wham bar and playing this beautiful melody and stuff. Then he puts it back and walks away. And I go, and my friend, um, Roger, he goes, I said, it's a, that's not possible. So we go see where he went. So you grab the guitar and do it like, a, like an open note. It's out of tune. Go, wow. Oh, you know, it's like, wow, he's, 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 he's you know, that's godlike. Yeah. Wow. Whammy bar and playing whatever he's playing and just put it all in tune by using the whammy bar. Wow. And that was, I think that was in New York and I was a kid. He was, he was just coming over with, uh, no, in Boston with a Rough and Ready band mm-hmm. with, with Bob Tench on vocals, uh, Cozy Powell on drums. I love that band. Yeah, I did too. And we saw them. They were and Todd Rogan was opening up. I remember now. Wow. I was out with LaBelle. And this was 73 or something. Yeah, 74, 73. But yeah, he like walked into the music store and it's like, how do you do that? I never forgot that. And I told him the same story. He's like laughing. He, wow. says, he said, I did have a whammy bar. I said, Yeah, you had a whammy bar. He said, That's the trick. Just you know, putting everything in tune and coming up with these great melodies or whatever. Jesus. And you put it back and played it. He said, yeah, we played it. It was like completely out of tune. He said, <laughs> he started wow. laughing. Wow. Um, uh, how about um, how about Carly Simon? She, does she really have stage fright? Did she have it when you played she did. Did no, she? she? In the studio? No, she didn't. Because we, we were okay, doing in uh, the studio. Mm-hmm. I think it was Phil Ramon was producing. Uh, what's the name of the song? We did, a, we did a track for her. Yeah, we played, I can't remember the track. It was another Phil Ramon because I did a lot of work with Phil Ramon. Mm. Uh, it was a session, and mm. she wasn't very shy. Just, but her shyness, her quietness, just a certain beauty of her, mm. you know. Because she just walked in and floated in, was wow, just gorgeous. Yeah, Absolutely she's a gorgeous woman, gorgeous talent. You know, she had, she had it all going on, but it was it was for a session, uh, something to do for a film. I'm not sure if it, if it ever came out. It was on an album somewhere. I, gotta, I have to search that around. It just reminded me. How about Billy Joel? Yeah, Billy Joel was great. That's when we did the stuff with uh, In a Room with Steve Winwood. Oh, right, right. We, we did I that already. Yeah. And how about Herbie Hancock? Hmm. Oh, yeah, just jamming. Yeah, hmm. he's still, he's classic. Hmm. classic. We, were, we were busy jamming in Japan for the um, um, earthquake victims um, in Kobe. It was a big festival with Oscar Brown. A bunch of us went over with, with nickel, nickel bag with Bernard and Stevie Salas. Mm-hmm. 
and we all got to play together and, and jam. And I knew him from the neighborhood here in Hollywood because we always used to go to the same places to hang out and play and jam. Nice. Yeah. So you were still doing that before COVID? There were still places to all go and studio. jam? Well, no, that, this, this was the 80s and 90s. And yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, because it doesn't exist anymore, everything stopped. does it? For me, everything stopped. 2019, everything stopped. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that last gig, whatever, um, March 12. But, but prior to, to the pandemic, could you still just go out on any given night and jam somewhere? No. I mean, does in New York exist anymore? I don't know. No, not at all. No. It, no. it was very rare, and there were really small places uh, that you had to go to. There's a, there was a place in Beverly Hills you can go to. Um, remember, what's his name? He used to have a great club, rock and roll club, the manager from police. Um, Oh, Copeland. Yes. Um, it, what was his club? Yeah, it was a great club. It was in Beverly Hills. He had an awesome club. And that's where we all used to get together and jam until mm. closing time. They had to throw us out. <laughs> and people would show up, you know. Um, yeah, that was a great club, man, Beverly Hills. Mm. And I just how, about, um, how about Carol King? Another one, uh, we did it, what we did for uh, the 9-11 festival, that was for, I had to put a house band together. We got hired by the promoters of Philly to the, for the stadium gig in D, Washington, D.C. where Michael Jackson was headlining. And we had to, we had to, Al Green and, and um, Carol King needed a house band. So we were the house band for Al, Al Green and for nice. Carol King. So we played like four songs a piece each other. That was great. And it was in a big stadium, which Michael Jackson headlined. It was filmed too. The 9-11 festival. That sounds get familiar. Yeah, um, it was a festival in Washington, D.C. And that's a stadium there. How about Ian Hunter? Yeah, I don't know how I get around. I'm, yeah. I, you I'm you, you have played with every <laughs> single person I love is on this list. We just did, we did the track, the Bowie Celebration tribute mm -hmm. for celebrating David's birthday. And he's, he's just this January. Oh, Ian this, had that great song about Bowie. Yeah, so we did, we redid the track. Mm. Yeah, it was great. That's a great, a really great song. A great tribute song. Yes, and, it is. And, the and he's easy too. He was, you know, no fuss, no, you know. And I was a big Malta Hooper fan too from back in the Me day. too, yeah. Nick you know, Ralphs and. Hell yeah. And, and you got to play with Carlos Santana. What was that about? Yeah, that was, that was 1970, 19, 1982. I think 1982, Nona mm -hmm. Hendricks. We were on a big bill at at, at um, what's that tennis place in Queens, Forest Hills. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There was a big festival, a charity with Meat Loaf, Carl Santana, uh, Todd Rudgren, Joe Cocker, uh, somebody, somebody else, and somebody else. And wow. we, were, we were half and half as the house band to play behind the people who didn't have a band. We were Nona Hendricks's band was the one who played behind to play play with everybody. And there's you, there's a video for that too. Did video. you get to play with Cocker that day? Yeah. yeah. Doing feeling all right. Oh my with god. Santana, we did uh we did Evil Ways and we did um, um uh, something that was a single, an Argent song. Rod Argent. Uh, remember the band Argent on the zombie? Yeah, yeah, kind of. Yeah, one of one of the songs, Winning. A song called Winning. Mm -hmm. And we did it with Santana with Carlos. First time, and I'm um, something later on for a festival in in Canada playing together. 
That has to be kind of dreamlike for for me because it's it's, it's it has it's my your own roots. roots. Yeah. Oh, and I always thought he was Puerto Rican. I didn't know he was he was Mexican. You know, we thought oh, he was Puerto either. Rican. So a week before Woodstock, they played mm-hmm. Central Park with Jefferson Airplane. There was a festival a week before Woodstock, and they played their live. So I got to see them for the first time live and in person. And I just thought they were Puerto Ricans, you know. And they were singing, you know, a Tito Puente song, Oye Como Va, it was a Tito Puente. So I thought they were Puerto Ricans, but they weren't. They were Where was that festival in New York? Yeah, it was a small festival. Like they used to have a, the, the band show back in the day. Right. It's Schaefer Festival. Lee yeah. Michaels. Well, mm-hmm. Schaefer's different from the band show. Schaefer oh, right, where the, ba- where the band show is. Okay, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. So they, I, I saw Traffic there and Lee Michaels and a couple other different bands. Rhinoceros. I saw people. Johnny Winter there, actually. There you go. Oh, wow and yeah. so okay so dave dave mason what was that uh, doing an album working on a, on a on a session for his album yeah a lot of that stuff is you know either one off getting hired to do sessions and being there and being responsible and doing the best i could do and moving forward your list is unbelievable it is just the people that you've played with, everything that you've done, that the long-term things you've done. Is there anybody that you still covet that you dream? Oh, I, I, I want to, I want to get behind that person one day. Or, yeah, Peter Gabriel. Oh, yeah. Nice. There was a time, there was a moment in time where, yeah, I admired uh, Tony Levin because Peter Gabriel's first tour in 1977, September of 77. Was that like Sledgehammer time? No, no, this is his first album. Before, okay. Yeah, this is after he left Genesis. This is his mm-hmm. first album, mm-hmm. released in August, I guess, 77. September, Nona Hendrix, they got us to support for the whole month, six weeks. So we spent six weeks on the Gabriel tour with Tony Levin on bass, David Sanchez on keyboards. Um, oh, shit, drum, great drummer, who I just did a session with not too long ago. Um, that band, the first album, mm-hmm. And we got to spend time with them, and they were the nicest bunch of motherfuckers we've ah, ever met. Wow. They, would, they, would, they would say, hey, you guys want to go to have breakfast or want to go eat something? And we go, yeah, sure. You know, <laughs> we're like, okay, they're going to need to. They're going to kill us or something. <laughs> Take us out in the woods and do us, you know? <laughs> we had no idea, but they were the sweetest guys to work with. And yeah. I never forgot 2011. They were just so gr- gracious with us. And they were just, you know, Eddie Mart, you know, it was me and Eddie Martinez and uh, Jose Rossi on percussion, and it, you know, Eddie and I we've been in so many different bands together. But that was an eye opener for us of having the headline, giving us sound check, and asking us, "You want to go to dinner? I want to go hang out." And Peter was just so, just delicious as a person, wow. just soft, and just checking things out and going looking around, and and they're just writing this these masterful pieces of music going. You know, and watching them, watching them do it in Europe before they came to America, which is a different audience. So it was my, so? my first major. It was my first major tour of doing arenas all over Europe with Peter Gabriel mm-hmm. for six weeks, and it's just the audience was like a kind of was like a Grateful Dead audience. It was just they were just all there for you, you know. And it was just you know, I could, I, I in my mind I could still I could still see Belgium. I still see France. Wow. I still see different places in my head. Wow. Um, we did all those theaters in England, in UK, all those beautiful theaters, the Shepherd Bushes and all that kind of stuff back in the day. Uh, the Hammersmith, uh, the place in Scotland. I mean, this, I still remember, I still got my books. I keep all my stuff with me. Um, but that was a tour that, that I went, that's the kind of artist I want to work for, you know, mm-hmm. and, I, and I ended up being a, 
I was already a Genesis fan because of the mm-hmm. prog stuff, but it was it's like, yeah, that's, and it, he just got better and better and bigger and just just stunning the writing ability and what came out of it was you just never knew what you what you were gonna get what you're gonna get from it. He's one of those I like to one day sit and tackle, you know, be a fly on the wall, just um, share ideas with him. Wow. You know? And see what he, you know, because I know, I know for sure he'll make me interpret what I hear into a different avenue, like David would do. David was always very good with people making the mistakes. He keeps the mistakes, and you learn from the mistakes. Wow. Yeah, he had a really, he, he was very, he was very good with that kind of stuff. So he made an error or whatever. He was sing to the error, which made the song part of the song. Wow. Whatever, you know, he sing to the mistake, and it was always very good because you would never go to that chord change automatically you just because of course of theory or whatever it was just untheorize your own head and those that, that's kind of education you just can't learn in books you can learn it but you'll never know what it's like when it's being thrown at you and you're swimming in it to get around it and those that kind of stuff i really miss pretty strongly uh over all these years because there's a lot of bands who are not the same as we grew up with and you know a lot of them mm-hmm. are passing away leaving us but they're leaving such a soundtrack of our minds you know and leaving such a great past for us and great history of stuff that we grew up with that, that brings tears to our eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that passionate stuff. And there's so many different bands and so many different angles that, you know, we had a great time coming up. There was so much great music. Unbelievable. You know, it was just, it's just, you know, it, it's, you know, not, not, not. And you, are, and you have played on so much of the great music of our yeah. time. I mean, but I never, just, never thought about. I never, like I said, never. You never don't have the ego ahead. with it, but yeah, exactly. It just, it just. I was, if I fell into a place, and I said, "Oh, this is great. I'm, I'm going to do this and whatever." And if, if it's wrong, somebody will tell me. And I was very cool with, to, to be misdirected, or whatever, or turn it upside down. I was. It was. It was something educational. I was really down for it. You know, anywhere I can mix my Latin and R&B roots in a situation. And that's how it worked. That's how we did Let's Dance. That's how we did China Girl, all that kind of stuff. By mixing R&B and Latin roots in rock and straighten, you straighten the tempo a little bit. You know, you don't swing the bass as much as you would do in the funk band. And you you have to learn that kind of stuff doing sessions. So there's a lot of a lot a lot of great education that came out of all those schools. Mm-hmm. I call you know tribes. Come on, how much how much have you been playing in the your home? How much do you play? Not much, not much, and I really mm-hmm. miss. It's better mm-hmm. when there's a drummer around. If I'm playing, yeah. I, I prefer. I, I would prefer that. I write a lot of stuff, so mm-hmm. I'm always writing stuff on keyboards or on bass. And I have a lot of different girls that I play with. You know, <laughs> most most days, most nights. Um, but yeah, I alternate between flat wound strings or wound wound strings or five string. Depends on the job. Like Guatemala mm-hmm. was one job. Rasta is one job. Um, Bowie's one job. Tina Turner's another job. Billy Squire's a different job. So different things interpret different 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 emotions and different ways of, of curving your, your playing abilities. How many basses do you have? I have four main girls, but I, I have about, I have what's left is about 12. I've given away a lot of stuff to charities and for schools because it's stuff I don't really need. You know, mm-hmm. people give me gifts or whatever and I let them know that I'm going to give it away. So I give a lot of stuff to charity and schools. That's low. But they need it. The kids need it. They need like real... After they learn a little bit on the shitty shit, like I did, you know, play something on a, on a good guitar, they can really hear themselves progressing better. So what are your four main girls? 
Um, I'm going to show you a picture of them. Cool. I'll show you three. Just okay. Like, just like I can show you three. That's one. Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. That's an Epiphone. Uh-huh. Flat wound. Oh, wait. Got... No, now we, now we don't see it. Wait, oh, okay. it's all right. It's okay. all right. There you go. There we go. That's yeah, yeah. Epiphone. Uh-huh. The body. Behind that is a fretless. Uh-huh. Which is always a different way of playing a Canadian guitar. And then you have my uh, exotic bass. Gorgeous. Yeah. Your signature. You all the pictures there. You see all yeah. the different yeah. pictures of them on. And the room is full of, you know, more shit, but I, wow. I, I don't have any space. So my, my mom my mom's place in Vegas. She has she has all the she has a lot of more stuff. Oh so, my God. You can't win any more gold and platinum records because yeah. you're you have run out of room. Wow. Yeah, Jesus. Well, yeah, there, there's a lot of stuff. I don't know if you can still read. No, we can't read them yeah, that yeah. well. But just yeah, you have a, that was the last gig in Israel. Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. But yeah, a couple of girls who get the keyboards, my toys. Nice. Uh, and so do you so you're in, you're based out in LA. You don't you're yeah. not in New York. Yeah. I miss I miss home. Yeah. I have you know, I, I do miss home. I wear my t-shirt, my Brooklyn t-shirt, clown. Um I miss home, I miss home a lot, you know, especially these days where you're spending more time in silence, which I like. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of you, you get a little bit more of an interval, you know, you get kind of turned into yourself, inside of yourself, mm -hmm. and you, you start flashbacking a lot of things in your mind because it's just, I'm not running and moving, running so fast, you know, so this stop was actually very good for me. So if I got a chance to get back out, you know, fully again, which hopefully next year, I'll just be as, as grateful even more so to be able to still do what I do and still make people smile, make people happy, make them enjoy the, the, the tunes that we're doing, how we're giving it to them. Um, I'm just, and I'm just very grateful that way. I really am. I'm just, I love, I love, I love doing what I do. And it shows in everything that you do. Uh, you, Carmine, baby. it's been so wonderful to, you know, I, 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 you've been over there and over here and over here all throughout my life, but to actually sit down and really have a conversation has been a dream come true. I've been trying to get you for years. I know. And the last time was because of Billy Gibbons because, because they changed the date and I had to go do a, a guitar legends with uh, with Warren Haynes and uh, somebody else. Damn uh, that Billy Gibbons. He keeps getting in my way. I know he's awesome. <laughs> we have, hopefully we have another one this, uh, this hopefully in, in December we'll do it. We'll film another show. Fantastic. Well, I can't wait to see you back on stage. I've so enjoyed this. I'm so grateful. I can't wait to get a hug, a proper hug. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a big I love hug. that. The, I, when I came and saw you, you were so lovely and invited me. And then I, I couldn't find you guys backstage, Bernard, you guys. So I never got that hug. But I look forward to it the next time. You get, you'll get two. <laughs> better. Mwah. Thank you Thank so much, Carmine. Have a good one. Anytime. Bye-bye. Get Mike Garson on the show. I would love to. You have to hook me up. I'll do it right right after this. After this after this commercial. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Thanks.